This week, a simple solution to the myopia epidemic. Give kids a lot more light exposure and help to bring myopia under control. And science, say cheese. These images are incredibly interesting because of the scientific information that's contained within them, but also really exciting because of their beauty and their aesthetic properties. And finally, the genetics of being British. Marvellous. Plus loads of other cool stuff in another awesome episode of The Nature Podcast. I'm Jeff Mush. And I'm Kerry Smith. We're all guilty of this, holding our phones too close to our faces or hunching over a lab bench or poring deeply over books, especially during school. But whilst your brain might love being filled with juicy, juicy knowledge, your eyeballs might be less grateful. In young people who are still growing, intense studying seems to throw the development of their eyes out of kilter, causing them to elongate, also known as myopia. That's where you can see objects close to you perfectly clearly, but those at a distance fade into blurriness. East Asia is particularly badly hit. In several Chinese cities, for example, 80 to 90% of teenagers are now myopic. A few decades ago, it was only 10 to 20%. But what exactly is it about too much studying that's causing this epidemic? Ian Morgan, a biologist from the Australian National University in Canberra, thinks that the culprit is not the act of looking at books or screens per se, but rather the associated lack of exposure to bright light. In a recent study in Guangzhou, China, Morgan tested his theory by simply boosting the amount of time children spent outside by 40 minutes a day. Myopia levels in those children dropped by a quarter. And based on a couple of chicken models of the disease, he thinks he knows the mechanism behind the eye-bending effect of too much study. I'll tell you what, if you uh, were at a dinner party where people were saying what work you did and I said, uh, oh, well, I'm one of the world experts on neurotransmitters in the chicken retina, people would drop to sleep all around you when you say, I'm trying to prevent an epidemic of myopia in China, people wake up and become very interested. And myopia or nearsightedness or short-sightedness is on the rise all over the world. Yes, it's certainly on the rise all over the world. We started to see very clear evidence coming out of a number of countries in East and Southeast Asia that the prevalence is really increasing. And in a generation or two, it's gone from the order of 20% of people leaving school short-sighted to uh, 80 to 90%. So quite a staggering change. Right, and the speed of that drastic increase kind of rules out an underlying genetic cause. It means that it can't be genetic change. Genetic change doesn't happen that fast. There is another way in which you can look at it, however. You can ask the question, well, is it something to do with uh, East Asian genomes? The answer to that is also no. And although this is on a huge scale, is myopia just an inconvenience that you know requires a, a new pair of glasses? Or what are the implications of this epidemic? It is much more than just a set of glasses. When you get to high levels of myopia, the eye becomes so enlarged that people become at risk of blindness. You could possibly see an increase of two, three, fourfold in the amount of blindness in the elderly. And that would be an enormous social cost. And so this idea that there is an environmental cause behind myopia, it isn't a new one, is it? 
No, it's not a new one. Uh, people started to see an increase in the prevalence of myopia about oh, 150 years ago, associated, it seemed to them, with increased schooling. We suggested that it was bright light because we know that bright light stimulates the release of dopamine from the retina. We know that in animal models of uh, experimental myopia, if we put compounds that mimic the action of dopamine into the eye while the eye is being pushed to grow, it blocks the growth. So this seems to give us a pretty clear case that we understand the mechanism, bright light outside stimulates dopamine release and that in turn blocks what's called axial elongation of the eye. So, yeah, there was a pretty coherent and plausible story. You also conducted a study in children in, in China where you also work. Tell me about that. What we did was to uh, give children in grades one through to three, and we followed them for three years, an additional 40 uh, minutes a day outside. And the end result was that these children became less myopic than the children who were not getting that extra time outside. The study that we've uh, carried out is pretty well matched with the study that was carried out in Taiwan. In East Asia, it is very common for children to stay in the classrooms at uh, recess times, at lunchtime. So in Taiwan, all they did was got the children out of the classrooms and then locked the doors. That would give kids, if they took full advantage of it, about 80 minutes a day, so about twice what um, we added to the school day, and they got twice the effect we did. So it looks as though we even have a dose-response curve. How do we put these findings into action? I mean, it sounds fairly difficult to implement an extra hour outside for all young people around the world. A whole range of initiatives are going to have to be uh, thought about to try and create a bit more space within the school day for children to get outside and a bit less homework study pressure so that children have the capacity to get outside outside of school hours. One of the things that we're currently carrying out a feasibility trial on is what we call a glass classroom, up towards the sorts of light intensities you'll get outside. And we hope that if this works as a mechanism, that this will give kids a lot more light exposure and help to bring myopia under control. There's a cheap alternative to all of this, just get outside for the right amount of time. But there are strong, practical, cultural reasons why that may be difficult to achieve. That was Ian Morgan from the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. And now long-sighted Kerry goes and takes a squinty look at a new exhibition on early scientific photography. Scientists are often in the business of measuring things they can't really see. Exoplanets crossing in front of a star, making that star blink ever so faintly. Or the structure of a protein or some DNA using uh, firing x-rays at it. 
But this isn't really a new thing, and here in the Science Museum's media space, a technology from the 19th century that helped scientists to do this is being showcased. Here with me is Greg Hobson, who's the co-curator of the exhibition, and where better to start than comparatively near the beginning with William Henry Fox Talbot, one of the pioneers of photography. Well, the inventor of photography, in fact, in, in Britain. Um, so Talbot was interested in how photography might be used to record scientific phenomena. So in this, we're standing in a little kind of, um, in a little box actually, surrounded by a few lovely prints on the wall um, here at the start of the exhibition. And one of them is a, is a very fragile looking, I mean both its subject matter and the, and the photograph itself look pretty fragile, of a, of a butterfly wing uh, under a microscope, right? Let's just uh, go a bit these nearer. Are, these are actually uh, the wings of a, an insect called a lanternfly, ah. um, which um, had a, a proboscis which would light up slightly almost like a like a firefly and what's really fascinating and very beautiful about these is the they had a pair of wings and they were entirely different in their in their patterning which is something that Talbot wanted to show and what we see here is both the photographic negative which was a waxed paper negative and then the positive mm. image that was made from that negative and these are taken in 1840, so very soon after the invention of, of photography. These will have been quite, uh, quite remarkable things for people to look at in the 19th century because what they will have been familiar with is the drawn image made by artists from their observations through a microscope, but these are records of the actual microscopic image. What would have been the impact on the scientists of the day having this kind of facility? It wasn't immediately evident what that, what that impact was. Um, I think people were still slightly sceptical about the quality of photographic images. But having said that, I think quite quickly people were beginning to try and see how far they could push photography to record other kinds of scientific phenomena, and in particular um, observing things that were very far away but also record things like movement uh, and, and so on. Now on the subject of things that are very far away, um, there's another beautiful set of photographs which we should move to next. And, and unlike the microscope images, I suppose these are things that people could not have seen before photography. They will have been able to see, um, to see the nebula in Orion, which this, this photograph by uh, Andrew Ainsley Common is, is of. There's a series of three photographs here um, and they will have seen something very much like the first photograph in the series, which is a series of little dots uh, in, the, in the night sky. What Common was interested in doing was seeing how far he could push the photographic process to allow the camera to see more than the human eye. Uh, and so in these three photographs we go from an exposure of one minute, uh, an exposure of 20 minutes, through to an exposure of 68 minutes. And the very same view of the night sky changes quite radically depending on how long the exposure goes on for and in the third picture we see something that is really quite beautiful almost like um like a painting but in a way that only the film in the camera could capture the human eye could not see um, this particular phenomenon at all these images are incredibly interesting because of the scientific information that's contained within them but also really exciting because of their beauty and their aesthetic properties. Did people immediately 
trust their cameras. I mean, if we can't see this thing, we just have to trust that the camera has taken a picture of what's there. Did that bother anyone at the time? Does it bother anyone now? Well, of course it bothers people now. We have to question every image that we look at and and question its veracity. And in a sense, this picture, this final picture, the 68-minute exposure of the Great Nebula in, in Orion, is a false representation of the thing itself because this is not how it looks to us and, in fact, not even how it exists. It can only exist in this form as a photograph on photographic paper and taken by a camera. However, when photography was invented and when people were first looking at these pictures, they did describe them as being images from life. So they didn't really question what they were looking at but accepted it as something as the form itself. From these observations of the astronomical world to something a bit more, for us at least, very commonplace today, and that is electricity. But of course, in the late 1800s, nobody had really seen this before. These really quite strange looking pictures, um, almost organic forms, uh, were made by uh, someone who was an electrical engineer called uh, Campbell Swinton. And he was making experiments to try and um, depict electricity as a photographic image and he did that by firing electric charges at the photographic negative and the electricity would essentially try and escape across across the negative and in doing so create these kind of slightly crazed patterns with these feathery little entrails of of energy they're amazing um, they're sort of sepia toned and this looks like a an elaborate alien fern plant uh, it does <laughs> It does. It, it, it's, it's the most unusual uh, depiction of electricity. That was curator Greg Hobson. The exhibition is called Revelations and covers not only early scientific photography, but the influence of those techniques on later art. It opens at London's Science Museum on the 20th of March and runs until September. And if you're not local, the Science Museum website has some lovely examples of the collection, sciencemuseum.org.uk slash revelations. Check out our Twitter feed for pictures as well. That's at Nature Podcast. Time now for the research highlights read by Noah Baker. Some flowers are able to choose who they mate with, a pretty impressive skill for a plant. The tropical Heliconia tortuosa, a beautiful red and yellow number, is visited by lots of different hummingbird species who come bearing pollen. But the plant only turns on reproduction after visits from long-billed hummingbirds. They drink more nectar, and that triggers the plants to become receptive to the incoming pollen. They also travel further than other hummingbirds, perhaps helping the plant to share a healthy mix of genes. That paper appears in PNAS. Time now for an update on prehistoric fashion. Eight eagle talons found in a cave in Croatia and now reanalyzed could have been used as Neanderthal bling. They have clear cut marks on them, probably made when the claws were cut from the bird's legs. Some of them look polished. If the talons are Neanderthal trinkets, they're another piece of evidence that Neanderthals may have had human-like capacities for symbolic behavior, making artifacts with no obvious practical use. More in the journal PLOS One. Who do you think you are? I mean, who were your ancestors? Where did you come from? What shape is your family tree? Genealogies become well trendy, 
and loads of us are interested in these questions. That includes scientists. A team based in Oxford has just published a detailed genetic ancestry map of Britain, kind of like a country family tree. To be included in this study, you had to live in a rural area in the UK, and all four of your grandparents had to come from that area too, within an 80km radius. The genomes therefore provided a record of the British gene pool of the grandparents' time, around the late 1800s, before lots of people moved to cities and before big migrations in and out of the country. It's a snapshot of British genetic history. Peter Donnelly is the team leader, and he came to the studio to tell gene geek Ewan Calloway about the study. So our study focused on people in the UK of European ancestry. To a first approximation, people of European ancestry in the UK look extremely similar genetically. What we were able to do, though, was to delve under the surface and look at quite subtle but real differences. And then, so we did all of that analysis of the genetic data, and then we looked at the clusters that came out of the genetic analysis, and we plotted those on a map of Britain to see what they revealed. And it's a pretty astounding map. Tell us a little bit more about, I mean, the kind of differentiation you saw. It was extraordinary when we first looked at the maps. We had no idea what to expect. It had been known from other studies, some work we'd been involved in and many others, that there were broad genetic trends in the UK. But what we were able to do through our study was to really zoom in on, as I said, quite subtle but real differences. And the patterns we saw were extraordinary. Two counties right next to each other, Devon and Cornwall in the southwest of Britain, uh, each corresponded to different genetic groups. And indeed, the, the set of individuals who are in the cluster only based on genetics in Devon geographically matched remarkably well with the modern county boundaries. So what created these differences that you've just talked about between uh, people from Devon and people from Cornwall, etc.? There are two different forces that would result in the patterns of differences that we see. One of them is that there will be different inputs of DNA through migrations from Europe The other effect, particularly in smaller groups like the islands in Orkney, is that when populations evolve over time in a way which is relatively isolated from each other, then just by chance, genetic differences will accrue between them. Is one example of that, say, the differences between people from Cornwall and Devon, where you've got this giant, expansive moor kind of separating the the two counties? Yes, in the south, there's a river, the Tamar River, and in the north, there's Bodmin Moor. Makes perfect sense uh, and would be expected that geographical boundaries to migration and movement of people will tend to foster relative isolation, and that can lead to genetic differences. Also, cultural differences or a sense, particular sense of identity. In southwest Wales, for example, in Pembrokeshire, we saw two genetic groups, and it's been known that for over a thousand years, the very tip of southwest Wales, the language spoken was English, whereas as you moved into Wales, people spoke Welsh. And the two genetic groups we see, the boundary between them, matches something that's called the Lanska line, which has been in place for almost a thousand years, uh, to mark the difference in language between the two groups. So language can be another factor which discourages marriage and mating between people in different regions. These differences that you you found across Britain between people, these genetic differences, also tell us a lot about Britain's history. What kinds of events did you uncover in, in the genomes of Brits? We saw evidence of a number of the known migration events. We see evidence in England of the Anglo-Saxon invasions. We're also able to quantify that. So in the case of the Anglo-Saxons, a typical person of European ancestry in modern-day England has a maybe a quarter and certainly somewhere under a half of their DNA is a result of that Saxon migration. So there's been a long-standing controversy in amongst historians 
about what happened when the Anglo-Saxons arrived in the UK. When they arrived, the place names all changed, the language changed, the cereal crops changed, and the pottery styles changed. So some had argued that that was because the Anglo-Saxons replaced the existing population, whereas our data shows that we see clear evidence of the Anglo-Saxon DNA, but because it's in the minority, it must have been the case that they intermarried with the existing population. So we're able to resolve that historical question. Does knowing the structure of Britain's population, does it help with anything other than reconstructing uh, Britain's history? It's potentially helpful background for doing studies of the genetic basis of disease in Britain, and that was one of our primary motivations at the outset of the study. So when we look for genetic factors which may influence people's risk of disease, we tend to compare sick people and healthy people and look for genetic differences. If there are differences geographically and you sample more sick people for one region and healthy people for another, then that can confound and complicate those studies. So having a good sense of the background can well be important in knowing what sorts of things we can rule out in terms of confounding factors. And of course, you've got people whose ancestry traces from all over the world who are much more British than me, who has, you know, a great, 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 great grandparent from Scotland. Yes. I mean, many of the people in the UK particularly due to migrations in the last century, don't have European ancestry, and they bring with them their own rich genetic diversity, some of which is and will be extremely helpful in studying the genetics of diseases and in, and in using genetics to better understand human biology and, and uh, change the way we do healthcare. That was Ewan Calloway talking to Peter Donnelly. Finally this week, the news chat. One of our newest editors, Richard Van Norden, joins us. You might recognise that name. He's on an editing stint and a vacation from being a reporter for a while. Richard, thanks for joining us in your new capacity. First this week to gene editing. Now, uh, we've talked about this on the podcast before. There are several quite new techniques to precisely edit bits of the genome. People are using them in all sorts of different cells. Uh, But what's the latest on this technique? It's quite a juicy story. There's been a kind of public outcry over the idea of editing the DNA of human embryos or eggs or sperm, in other words, any reproductive cells. Last week, Edward Lanthia, chairman of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine in DC, he's also CEO of a company called Sangamo Biosciences, and he wrote a comment piece in Nature saying there should be a moratorium, a halt on the use of this technology in reproductive cells, not just on creating an embryo, creating a baby, which is many, many years into the future and may never happen, but just on even researching the idea of editing genes in cells that theoretically might then pass on those changes to future generations if they were developed into a human being. We'll get to that moratorium uh, in just a second, but the background is that there have been some some rumours this past week that these kinds of experiments have in fact already been done on, on human embryos. Exactly. So MIT Tech Review, the news outlet, published a story that said they'd been told that papers had been written where researchers had edited embryos. And we've also been told that by people. No one wants to say their names publicly. So those are the rumours flying around that reporters are getting. There are also many other researchers who will publicly freely admit that, yes, we would like to try editing the DNA of uh, an embryo or of uh, an unfertilised egg They want to research it to find out whether these gene editing techniques are as precise and as easy to use as they seem to be. Back to the moratorium then. This is Nature's comment piece from just uh, a few days ago now. This group of scientists calling for researchers to agree not to do this work. But this gene editing technique is just an extension of others. I mean, gene therapy involves gene editing and that's in clinical trials around the world. So what's different here? What's different, say, the Sangamo scientists, is the idea that 
just the ethical problem that you are editing a reproductive cell, that kind of change, a person created using those cells would have had their makeup changed without consent and would pass down that change to future generations permanently. Public alarm at that kind of research could be so great, say the Sangamo scientists, that a public outcry could hinder the promising areas of gene editing that you're talking about. For example, gene editing someone's blood cells to cure them of some kind of blood disease. In that case, you're not necessarily affecting the next generation at all. I mean, you could argue it's a little self-serving for Sangamo, which is doing some of this gene editing, to worry about a public outcry of editing these reproductive cells because they fear that it could somehow taint their research. But, but that is their position. Or to try and squash a competing technique, I suppose. Well, exactly. Maybe that is, you know, that some scientists said, hmm, this is coming from Sangamo, interesting position that they have. Now, the real danger here is that these kinds of gene editing techniques are so simple that a private clinic could do this, even though it is illegal in many countries. You've given an idea of some of the reaction to this. It hasn't been very long since this comment piece was published. Another is coming out in science uh, later this week. What have the rest of the community been saying? Well, George Church, who's one of the authors of the the science commentary that's coming out, says, well, it's a bit like in vitro fertilization IVF babies. You know, everyone said there was a fundamental line there. But then after research was done and IVF babies were born, now they don't think there is. It's not necessarily a slippery slope towards designer babies, as the Sangamo scientists are suggesting. It's certainly a story that's going to run and run, what with the rumours being confirmed or denied, the science coverage coming out and our own in nature continuing. OK, so on to story number two then, which is about the, the US government's central marijuana repository. If you're a researcher in the United States, you can buy marijuana from the National Institute of Drug Abuse, and that is your sole dealer. If you want to research marijuana for something like conditions like epilepsy or chronic pain... You had to buy it from this agency. It's got a contract with the University of Mississippi. But now that legal marijuana is increasingly available to the US public, the institute, NIDA, is is quietly changing its course. It's massively scaling up the amount of marijuana it's growing and the marijuana's potency. And these new drugs could be available to researchers to do science on quite soon. That's what we're reporting about this week. Yeah, it's been, in fact, as of last year, making a lot more, uh, making it more powerful. And this is because researchers were complaining at some times that it's, you know, it wasn't potent enough to do the, the job they wanted it to do in their research studies. Right. Essentially, the marijuana was too weak and didn't represent at all what was sold on, on the street. Uh, in rather more detail, it didn't have enough levels of the non-psychedelic chemicals that show therapeutic promise. Now, NIDA has two new strains of marijuana, although some people are still not very impressed with these plants. For example, at least 90% of the marijuana that the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, seizes off the street contains high levels of tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the primary active ingredient, often more than 20% by weight, whereas NIDA's pot only has 12% THC. It may be that what is going to happen is that NIDA will end up not being the sole provider of weed for researchers. Well, my idea was going to be that they use the stuff they've seized off the streets and just repurpose it for science. But the article gives us a different idea, and that is that state universities perhaps could just grow their own. Right. Maybe NIDA will face competition. Last December, Colorado state government asked the federal government, can you please let state universities grow marijuana for research? Because we're having awful trouble getting the products from NIDA and from private growers overseas. 
Another idea is that growers in the UK and Israel and Canada might produce research-grade marijuana that scientists are able to buy. So with pot increasingly available to scientists outside the United States and perhaps the researchers able to buy it from other sources, it looks like the NIDA's monopoly of weak weed is doomed. <laughs> uh, Richard, thank you very much for regaling us with those facts. Uh, I'd also just like to say a quick thanks to David Cyrinowski and Sarah Reardon, the reporters on those stories. More at nature.com slash news. That's it. We're out of time and I need to go and spend some time in bright sunlight. See you next week. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Mush. <laughs>